Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel where he dives into strange and weird and fascinating data. Playing some sci-fi ambient space music inside the UFO. So I thought that would be a perfect background music to uh, reading, continuing reading, Gerald Hurd's There's Another World Watching. The Riddle of the Flying Saucers. I'm going to put the volume down so you can hear me better. Um, yeah, volume 12 seems alright. So yeah, and this time I'm reading it from my mezzanine, and there's a reason for it. Uh, today is the 9th of July, but we are just turning into uh, 10th of July, it's a Friday, um, and so yeah, and um, yeah, the reason why I'm in the mezzanine is because today uh, my dad and Perko came here today, well I stayed over at theirs yesterday and, uh, and then we all came here and dad helped me put up uh, my 50 inch TV in the mezzanine so yeah really happy and it nicely fits on there um, I mean you can have bigger screens but I like that size screen because nicely fits in there for me um, so yeah so yeah great and my book arrived uh, from Paul Stamets, Mycelian Running, uh, How Mushrooms Can Help Save the World. So yeah, um, so yeah, that's why I'm up here, really love feeling good, and let's dive into this next chapter. Where are we up to in this chapter? We're up to chapter 7, to 1953. So yeah, the date I did tell you was the 9th of July, uh, going into 10th of July, 2021. Let's go. Having disposed of the objection that they never appear outside the USA, that they are our own national invention or our own idea of fun, we can continue listing and trying to order and understand the continued sightings. During 1951, the explainers away seemed for the moment to have won the ear of the American public. Most of us were persuaded not only to close our minds, but to shut our eyes as well. We shall return to this interesting byplay between informers and informed in the next chapter. What we have first to point here is that another change in the general opinion about the reality of these enigmatic sky engines took place early in 1952. The area of the critical new sightings was in Korea and it was the United States Air Force itself that reintroduced the whole subject to respectability in brackets and to the attention of a public a little afraid to notice anything without official leave. It reported that two air squadrons cruising over the front a considerable distance apart had reported unidentified aircraft flying in their vicinity. 
From that time on, until the end of the year, sightings poured in. Were there really more visitations, or had we only gotten over our fear of stating what we had seen? Certainly, the Air Force now decided to give us competent assistance in helping us to decide whether we had really seen an actual unknown sky object. Certainly, civilian observation took on a new standard of objectivity and accuracy. The Air Force prepared forms which were sent to everyone who reported a sighting. This further questionnaire showed if there was no other evidence that the Air Force was serious about this matter. At the same time, a civilian investigation committee was set up and prepare the file. Those who wished to send in sightings or obtain information could now write to a certified centre. Today, anybody who wishes can send the descriptions which they may have on hand to post box 1971, Main Post Office, Los Angeles. These point, however, points, however, will be considered further in the next chapter. In this chapter, we will attempt to order these later sightings. They certainly set a new high, not only in their numbers and their accuracy, but also in the way that they have focused on the very centre of our national life. So many of the previous sightings have been in out of the way places, over the deserts and over the sea. But these new sightings, which shook sceptical contempt most profoundly, the famous simultaneous records made both by air pilots in flight and by the radar which was directing them were made in one of the most central spots in the whole world. The place chosen for this manifestation and display of air power was Washington DC, directly over the Pentagon and the White House. This area is, of course, not only one of the best known in the world, but also one of the most carefully guarded. Here is a specific account of the main outliers of that extraordinary visitation. By the 20th, July had easily outstripped all early months in a number of good source sightings. At 20 minutes to 1am, the radar operator on duty at the Civilian Aircraft Control Centre was watching his screen as he directed the commercial planes flying in his district. He saw something on the screen and he stared. For on this screen along with the small light blots which he knew were the radar images of the planets he was guiding there were other images. It was obvious that several unknown objects must have managed to swoop in not much more than a dozen miles to the southwest of the capital. Before he could decide what, if anything could be done, these startling radio profiles flickered out as quickly as they had flickered in. But then they flicked on again, and, doubly amazing, this time at the other side of the compass, on the northeast of the city. The senior controller and all the staff gathered to watch, and not in vain. Indeed, the real show now began in earnest, where the blips began to a fantastic dance. And that dance everyone recognised was a shadow, a reflection of standard source of flight. Some hung still in the air, others oscillated or circled very rapidly, others zigzagged 
with those amazing right angle lightning flash turns which we know sources and nothing else can make. The observation towers at the airfields were now called. Had they seen anything with the naked eye? Yes, and so for the first time we know that both radar and trained visual observation had recorded the same enigmatic things simultaneously. What was appearing on the radar screen was visible to the human eye. Two trained airfield observers at that moment were actually observing in the sky what three radar instruments at three different stations were now O2 recording. Further, a commercial air pilot who was taking readings from the radar centre was instructed by the traffic control to look out for what the radar was showing. And the pilot called back that six strange lights were cruising in the sky and at immense speed. For few radar screens record fast enough to follow the path of one of these trespassers where it puts on a spurt of speed. No wonder the visitors thought light of any sentries being able to arrest them. The one that the swift radar succeeded in pacing was found to be cruising at more than 7,000 miles per hour. Two more hours passed and then radar equipped Air Force jets, those presence, um, presence had been earnestly requested at once by the radar officials, did fresh in from the coast and told the radar men on the ground that there was now nothing to be seen. To which the radar officials replied ruefully, that's R-U-E-F-W-U and a double L-Y, ruefully, and perhaps a bit caustically. And now there isn't anything on our screens either. But why didn't you come before? The planes, therefore, as their fuel was giving out, went back to their base. Promptly, the blips returned, throwing bright dancing reflections over the radar screens again. And this time, as one of these seemed to be keep, keeping company with the blip shadow cast by an incoming plane, that plane's pilot, Howard Dermott, was instructed to see if anything was visible to his eyes. Sure enough, when he looked in that direction, there was an intense white light at the very spot where the radar had told him to look. During most of this night, the eerie fleet had waltzed about with the apparent carelessness of midges dancing on a summer's eve. No pattern seemed to be evident in their exuberant flight. But whenever an earthly plane came crushing in, cruising inside, then as roaming gulls flock about a fishing skiff approaching harbour, the radar showed that the unknown craft had gathered round, observing the plane. Five days later, just after dark, pilots in their planes were alerted. Blips show that you are now surrounded by unknown air company. Look out, most replied. Yes, we are viewing cruising lights where you instructed us to look. By 11.25, jets complied with the request that they inspect what was going on. And the radar officials, who had been impatiently summoning them, maintained that one pilot reported he saw four unknown lights and chased them at his top speed for two minutes. But they withdrew much faster than he could follow. The radar officials also announced that hardly five minutes after this, another 
pilot reported a similar sighting, a similar pursuit and a similar disappearance. According to Life, which gave a full account of this unprecedented visitation, the Air Force seemed uncertain as to what should be said. On the other hand, Henry J. Taylor, top-ranked commentator, who until then had stoutly held out that the discs were secret USA weapons, considered the evidence and came to a new conclusion. He showed that he had been right in maintaining that the United States is at work continually improving instruments of defence, but that above and beyond these official secrets, they're still maintained stubbornly aloft and inscrutably aloof the enigmatic, unidentified aerial objects. However, some people who till then had told us that radar was our super defence now began to say that it quite often reported solid objects to be present to be present when, as a matter of fact, nothing but disturbed air was causing the image on the screen. These stale theories that all source of sightings and so also these at Washington were only mirages, was once again floated out to comfort those who fear anything that can that an authority can't explain. It is true that when a hot layer of air gets above a cold layer, there is what is called an inversion. And this does sometimes take place over deserts when at night warm air can rise quickly and cool air floats in underneath. Then a warm upper layer can best reflect light on the ground. This inversion, however, has to be considerable, at least 9 or 10 degrees. Donald Kehoe, in his December 1952 article in True Magazine, gives an account of the inquiry that he made at Washington to determine how much inversion would be needed to make the mirage effect. The Air Force expert was able uh, to consult, uh, said it would need an inversion of temperature of at least 9 degrees. The Weather Bureau uh, chart showed that on the night of the first visit, the inversion was only 1 degree, and on the second visit, it was hardly 2. Kehoe also asked the Air Force if they had requested Dr. Menzel, chief propagator of the Mirage theory, to apply his analysis to the cases that were well and truly reported. He was told that the doctor had been asked to do just that, and he was also informed that the doctor had not attempted to meet this requirement. Until the statement is refuted, it is still how much it is, it is clear how much credence the public can put in the mirage theory. We are bound to ask, is it itself a mirage or a smoke screen? But though the air above the capital gave the source of mystery its biggest spring life, the air above the desert was not deserted by these interplanetary investigators. Indeed, the New Mexican desert gave new type, the New Mexican desert air gave rise to a new phenomenon: the green cruising fireballs. At the time of their first appearance, they were also sighted over western Austria and as to the date of this writing, they were still being seen in parts of America. They do not resemble in form or in flight any ordinary meteorite. Emerald green is a very unusual tint 
but a meteorite. Add to this uncommon complexion an equally uncommon slowness of flight and steadiness of path. In many cases, they seem to be flying on a steady horizontal course rather than sloping toward the Earth. So it is hard to think that these are just chunks of sky rock pitching in overhead from outer space. Two further odd features, one unprecedented and the other completely anomalous, make the meteorite hypothesis impossible to hold. I is in one. After these green objects have passed overhead, the air is found to have in it distinct traces of copper. A copper meteorite is yet to be found. The only metallic meteorites are of the well-known nickel and iron type. II or two. On more than one occasion over the southwest, highly trained observers have told the writer that they saw such a globe or disc change its mind. This seems set on making an Earth landing. But suddenly it reversed its course, shot up again and disappeared in the dark sky above their heads. In addition to the green fireballs with their strange paths, the desert had had constant disc visitors both by day and by night. And when they come at night, they glare, generally with a blue-white light when in motion. All this had been fairly well known before last year. The great addition made by 1952 to our disc knowledge is the certified fact that when a disc passed overhead, Geiger counters have been found to double their discharge. The disc, as we have seen, is nearly always silent and that probably means that it must be cruising at about 25,000 feet. And yet an object so distant, some four miles high or more, proves to be so intensely radioactive that it acutely disturbs an indicator of shortwave radiation. We know of no source of radioactivity as powerful as that. This discovery does a great deal to buttress the suggestion which will be put forward in chapter 10 that the powering of the craft may be magnetic. Such a powering could explain their unprecedented performance and also would seem to indicate that their passage to us could have been from no other country on Earth but rather through space from some other planet. Meanwhile, every week of 1952 was filled with authenticated finds. The majority confirmed past observations from New Jersey to Vermont, a series of daylight sightings traced a bright disk-like object. On Vermont, observers saw me, uh, observers told me, sorry, one Vermont observer, sorry, one Vermont observer told me that it appeared quite large and looked like a white stalkless mushroom skimming across the sky going north. Many photographs were taken of three discs cruising along the Massachusetts coast. There were the twin rims that in March had swooped down at Greenfield near Boston. They gave out a high-pitched note as they moved Otherwise, their inspection was curiously similar to that made of the train that was crossing the Scottish Forth Bridge. The same rapid descent, 
the same apparent scanning and the same equally rapid withdrawal of sky. Another ring inspection on a far vaster scale and over a more spectacular location was witnessed in midsummer over the Niagara Falls district when hundreds of people both in Canada and the United States watched giant twin rings scan this extensive area. From Rio de Janeiro, world famous uh, harbour, also came reports of a disc that suddenly rushed in from the Atlantic towards uh, the bay in full sunlight and went out and up again. Four first-rate photographs were taken and published in Rio's best-known illustrated weekly, Ocruzio. That's uh, O and then space and then C R U Z I E R O I E R O. Yeah, Ocruzio. Cruzio. They stood up to inspection until an expert photographer discovered that the shadow apparently thrown on the disc's flat flange by its central boss would indicate that the sun was at a different elevation than that indicated by the shadows thrown by some bushes that appear at the foot of the picture. This, it was suggested, showed that it was possible two exposures had been made on the same film. Yet the director of the Rio Observatory came forward to say that he had been out on the observatory terrace on the day that the photographs were taken, and he himself had seen the disc object come into the bay, fly round and go out to sea again. During July and August, a slightly different phenomenon was witnessed, repeatedly over the Los Angeles district by numbers of onlookers. A bright light was seen descending from the zenith. After it had come down some distance, it seemed to hover. Then suddenly, four, four small satellite objects, sometimes brighter than the parent body, appeared to be ejected, and the parent body either disappeared or turned off its light. In one case, at least the four small objects appeared to come together again. A single body was formed, and the whole object shot out of sight. So the record continues. A steadily mounting number of good observations by witnesses not only competent but impeccable and made under excellent conditions. The craft would seem to remain in the four main categories. The disc, the tube, the huge object, possibly the mother ship, and finally the rings or scanners. We may add that the hanging lights which seemed to play at making themselves into temporary chandeliers, could possibly be some further and newer variety of detection, devised to permit an even closer study of the Earth. For we cannot help assuming, as we shall continue to discuss in the chapter Whence Again, that if these visitors seem interested in studying us, they also seem anxious to avoid becoming involved. We have to realise and this book will stress that matter, that we could be triply dangerous to them. I, or what, um, the pull of our gravitation could easily hold them motionless, as an iron filing is held by a magnet, if they came from a lighter planet, or I.I., even if they emerged in some kind of protective covering, in brackets, and so screened themselves from the danger of being asphyxiated by the air we breathe, 
which to them might be poisonous gas. Close buckets. Our germs and viruses clinging to their suits and so brought into their ships could start an epidemic and kill them all. And then, I, I, I. Our very uncertain tempers and our capacity for panic might lead us to massacre them. They, therefore, would strive to observe us as we in a submarine attempt to observe and record the alien conditions and creatures in which underwater craft are submerged. And, similarly, they must remain in their craft or perhaps perish. Reason would suggest that the vast differences between our native conditions and theirs had required that they keep their distance and also that they devise instrumental means for studying us. Those of us old enough to remember the contempt with which able men in their prime in 1900 regarded the prophecies of television should not find it too hard to credit minds so far ahead of ours in propulsion and vehicle design as are these visitors with equal advancement in detection devices. To the best of our knowledge, the craft have not landed, unless we credit the strange and single report of the East German refugee and his young daughter who, after escaping from the Russian zone, declared that for a moment and in the dusk they had seen a saucer on the ground, its two occupants outside their vehicle. There is also the anomalous case of the scoutmaster in Florida who vouched that he approached an object that was on or very near the ground. He, however, avers, A-V-E-R-S, avers that a sudden discharge from the object felled him so that he had he was naturally unable to make an inspection of the vehicle if such it was. Now that we have very briefly given the principal sightings to date, the case that illustrate the type of craft with which we have to deal and the powers, intentions and limitations of the possible visitors, we must go on to consider what we should do and what so far has been done. We must turn to the other party in the matter, the involuntary host, ourselves, and our reaction to the visit. And that will be looked into in Chapter 8, Project Saucer and public opinion.